Welcome to episode 320 of The Sleeper in the Bust. It is Monday, March 14th. I'm your host, Paul Spore, and right now I'm not joined by anybody because this is a separate intro for our interview with John Smoltz. Now, I'm certain that all of you know who he is, but if you don't, you're crazy. I, 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 no, I can't accept that. I can't accept any of you not knowing who John freaking Smoltz is, but that is who we're interviewing today. You're going to hear Eno and I talk to him about all sorts of pitching stuff, basically using his career as the, the through line, talk about adding pitches, changing pitches, uh, command, you know, kind of his thoughts on command. Obviously, that's, you know, no matter what, as much as we talk about it, it's still a bit of a nebulous thing. It means different things to different people, particularly, you know, analysts, pitchers, scouts. They all kind of have their own ideas of, of what it might mean. So we get into that with him. Obviously, talk about the transition from starting to relieving to starting again, um, how injuries affected him. You know, obviously, he had the Tommy John, I think at age 33 it was, then came back, did the relieving, went back to starting. Um, we also kind of, you know, I asked him for a couple guys that he's interested in this year that he, he sees taking a big step forward. You know, I don't think he plays fantasy baseball. I didn't ask him that, but, it, you know, since this is a fantasy baseball podcast, with that as a main idea, just, you know, said two guys that are a little bit down that you think could, could step forward this year, gave some really interesting names, gave a couple mid-level names and then one high-end name that he, he, you know, continues to see that potential to put it all together as a complete superstar. So we'll get into that, but you know, I don't want to waste too much time here. Let's get into this. This was one of the most fun experiences of my career so far, being able to interview John Smoltz. I think it's clear that I'm not yet an 80 grade interviewer, but I'm going to be doing more and more guest episodes all season in hopes of, of turning me into such. So, you know, definitely came up with some great questions for us, given his experience with asking players questions and hopefully you guys really like it. Definitely let us know, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes, drop a four star, five star on there, at least, at least a four star, ideally a five star. But uh, leave your comment. Let us know what you think. Also, follow us on Twitter at Ian Osiris, at Sporer, and at Jason Collette. Without further ado, John freaking Smoltz. We're joined now by Hall of Fame pitcher John Smoltz. John, thanks for being with us today. How's it going? Oh, I'm doing good. Thanks, guys, for having me. We really appreciate you being on. Wanted to bring you on, obviously, to talk a lot about pitching. Eno, I know you've got some great questions for him. Uh, let's go ahead and start with the first one. Hey, John. I, well, first, I just wanted to ask real quick, uh, Marmaduke, what's that all about? Yeah, Marmaduke, first nickname I was given by uh, Dale Murphy when I got to the Atlanta Braves. And I think it uh, appropriately fit the way that I was, uh, I guess, lanky and always goofing around and having <laughs> a good time. So it's one of those uh, that stuck, and I had a big, huge bone that was over my locker representing uh, the Marmaduke. Now, that's the most important question that we're going to ask today. All the rest are pretty frivolous, just so you know. Well, you know, one thing that I, yeah. I love, you know, I grew up in Atlanta. I was in Atlanta from 87 to or 86 to 94, so I, I got to see a lot of that nice run. And um, I remember you, you know, as a fastball slider guy, and, you know, the splitters thing sort of seemed to come to me later. Did you? When did you learn the splitter, and sort of who taught it to you? Well, uh, you know, I was just a fastball slider guy. When I got to the big leagues, my uh, first pitching coach was Bruce Del Canton, and 
he wanted me to throw two seamers and sliders. I was a four seam fastball and a curveball guy that uh, Detroit kind of canned my curveball. Don't know why. They said it was too big, and I thought it was pretty good. So when I got to the big leagues with Atlanta, I threw two seamers, which ended up being a very straight, hittable fastball, and a slider, which fortunately I was able to learn through with the help of Leo Mazzoni. It was basically a four-seam grip, throw-and-turn pitch that really had late, late break at the end and that tight, tight dot that you want to have for a slider where the hitter cannot pick up that spin. But the problem is it took me a while until I asked the catcher, hey, is my two-seamer moving at all? And he says, no, it's pretty straight. And I went, why didn't you tell me that about six starts ago? And I went, I went back to a four-seam fastball, which naturally kind of cut for me so I could command the outside part of the plate and dominate over there and didn't have to go inside as much. And so I would, I would work the outside part of the plate with both my fastball and slider. When the split came about, I was getting beat up by left-handers. I couldn't throw a changeup. I never consistently could throw a changeup. So it was a lot of pressure on two pitches. Nardi Contreras, who was a pitching coach for the, the Braves fire system, taught me uh, a modified split finger. And it was, it was designed to, to, to change the speed off of a fastball. And so I never dug. It was a comfortable pitch, never had any stress with that pitch. And I naturally picked it up quickly. And it single-handedly was an elimination of, you know, it was, it was that equalizer for me against left-handers. And I would say I started bringing it out a little bit in the playoffs for Barry Bonds uh, in the, in the uh, postseason and then really, really developed it in 96. Without that pitch, I don't think there's any chance I could have won the Cy Young. That was the, uh, the combination of putting everything together in one year. And from that point on, I just felt like those two pitches, the split and the slider, gave me uh, neutralized a lot of hitters that if my fastball wasn't on point or I didn't locate it, I had those other pitches to go to. I think the hard thing that fans don't understand is how long it takes a pitcher to bring a pitch along to where he feels he can be comfortable with that. So, in other words, it, you know, a slider away from a right-hander, I had no problem with that. It took me close to a year to learn how to throw a backdoor slider to a left-hander or a front-door slider where you throw it at the right-hander on the inside part of the plate and trust it's going to break back over the middle to inner part of the plate. So those are things that you bring along and you learn. Once you learn how to perfect it, uh, it's a lot more fun to pitch, obviously. You know, it's really interesting to hear you talk about uh, the the straight two seamer because I I think of you as a little bit more over the top and you had more of a sort of that riding four seam. And I also have just been talking in camp to to Zach Greinke about how he can really command it better to to the glove side and how he had to you know move on the rubber uh, you know to 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 fit his command and and work on right. arm side command. So you know it's kind of like some of the stuff is just finding the best techniques for your natural arm slot and your natural your natural mechanics and it's also interesting to hear you talk about like learning that back foot slider because you know i i look out at the game and there there seems to be some guys that have figured it out and they're just are almost just fastball slider guys when you watch like Derek holland garrett richards jason hamill john lackey have they just really perfected the command on that back foot slider or are they doing something else that you can see that that can make them successful even though they're sort of 
you know, two pitch guys or mostly fastball slider guys like you were early in your career? Yeah, there's been an evolution change or, um, I guess, growing philosophy of the cutter. I'm not a fan of the cutter. I think for some players and some pitchers that have a tremendous amount of movement on their two-seam fastball, the cutter has some purpose. John Lester is a little bit different. Everything he does works off the fastball, and he throws a lot of hard cutters into right-handers, and he's gotten better at obviously throwing the cutter back door to right-handers. But he's got, a, a, I think, a better curveball than most people think, and it gives them a better change of speeds. It gives the hitters something to change their eyes. And the one downside that I would say from what you said with a lot of those pitchers, yes, when they're on, they're going to dominate a game. And when they're not, it just gives a little bit more of the hitter an opportunity to stay hard. Everything's hard, hard, hard. And when you make mistakes hard, then that hitter can utilize that and basically turn it into power. That my change of speeds with the split and the curveball and changing the eye level, I'm always a big believer. If you're a four-seam, high-fastball riding guy, you really should come. You should have a curveball if you can, because those two planes work real well. If you're a low fastball to two-seam fastball, low in the zone, the slider becomes a much better pitch off that off that fastball. So a lot of the guys you talked about down in the zone give hitters fits when you. The hitter only remembers the last pitch, right, the last pitch in the location. He doesn't really see the last 4.5 to 5 feet of the ball that travels. And so imagine if you have that ability to, to make the ball move one way or the other off your fastball, you're going to have a lot more success. And that late movement that some of these guys have perfected, like a Dallas Keuchel, is so – it's like having two pitches. So when you have that kind of movement – and a hitter goes to swing at a pitch where he thinks the ball is and actually ends up moving off that spot, that's why you get weak contact. That's a luxury that Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, some of the day guys that in the back in the day that were pitchers that pitched off of the weaknesses and the strengths of the hitters but exposed them to movement, that's why it was such a beautiful thing to watch. You mentioned late movement. And, you know, the way you describe your slider, it reminds me a little bit. I wrote about the Dan Worthen slider, and he talks about um, holding it, like, uh, not deep in your hand but more in your fingers and throwing it like a right. fastball and kind of twisting at the end just a little bit with your fingers, less with your wrist. And so he talks about uh, how it looks like a, a fastball for a long time, and then it, it sort of just has that late movement. It's, it's It gets you a lot of weak contact, foul balls, that sort of thing. Not as many sort of you know, big whiffs that you see from, from bigger sliders. Do you think that your slider is a little bit like that? And, and how do you affect weak movement, uh, late movement? How do you, how do, is that something that you can mechanically think about? Or, or is there different ways to grip the ball? Or do, is that something you've thought about before, how to actually get late movement? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is sometimes it's natural and God-given, right? Like the life on a fastball and the way that the fingers come off the fastball. And some guys, if you line up playing catch, the ball is going to say 97 miles an hour on, on, let's just say, five different pitchers. But when you go to catch a 97-mile-an-hour fastball, it feels and looks harder, that late life. And it's the same way with spin on a slider. I had the natural ability to know that with my – I threw a two-finger slider. In other words, equal pressure on two fingers and used the seams as a, as a weapon for me. So I had it kind of like a rudder in a boat where I could steer it and be behind it. I never – I mean, I'm sure I threw a couple backups, but I rarely ever threw a backup slider. So if you know it's going to break, and I like that 45-angle degree kind of break, I want to slice that plate 
to me, I looked at where I wanted the ball to end up and not so much start it where I, where, to my eyes to a, to, a, to a spot. And so what I would do is before Tommy John, I threw a four-seam, two, two, four-seam slider. It was throw, turn, late, just kind of what you're talking about with Wortham. And then I had to, because after Tommy John, I couldn't replicate or duplicate that pitch for whatever reason, whether it was mental, whether it was physical. I went to an off-centered uh, kind of – took the if you took the baseball and where the sweet spot that most of the guys sign, I went over the edge of that, off-centered my, my fingers to like a 45-degree angle, and naturally that would allow the ball to already be – cutting as it comes out of my hand and and my luxury was because it was late and because it was tight they really did not recognize the two and I learned how to break it bigger smaller I'm a feel kind of pitcher that when I feel something I'll adapt quicker some people are more knowledgeable to the actual science of it and you know they can pick up but I can I can adapt by my feel uh, if you show me how to do something. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, just one last question about this sort of fastball slider curve combo. You, you were talking about uh, John Lester, and I seem very uh, very comparable to Madison Bumgarner, but there is kind of a, a, a set of guys out there, not just fastball slider, but fastball slider curve, no change. So kind of Shelby Miller, Jordan Zimmerman, uh, Bumgarner, Kershaw, uh, Lance Lynn, maybe even Zach Wheeler, we'll see. But uh, the, the, I guess what I'm hearing from you is that if you, if you see a guy that's fastball slider curve, what you want to see from them is a good four seam, almost more than a sinker, because you want, you want them to be able to set up that, that curve with the four seam and, uh, and then play yeah, everything I, off that four seam. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, in this day and age, and like it or not, and we're going to find out in the next five years if this works and if it's sustainable – I think we've we've gone to max effort a lot, right? So we're seeing higher velocity than we've ever seen up in the strike zone. Guys can challenge the strike zone. They're not pinpointing control because you sacrifice control with velocity. And so, therefore, the more swing and miss, miss approach, the strikeouts not as important to the hitter, um, you're going to see a lot of guys getting away with things they normally wouldn't. Having said that, though, uh if you don't have something to change the eye level of the hitter and you, your, your secondary pitches are not coming around, that's where we're going to see, like ever before, some big blow-up games out of some great pitchers. Uh, last year was a strange year when it came to high strikeout totals and high runs given up, you know, whether it was Kluber or, or um, Samarja or even Chris Sale. These are guys that can strike out a lot and, and can dominate a game. But I think the fact that you, you, you're always geared towards velocity and you're always geared towards really making or trying to embarrass the hitters, you are on the risk of not having enough touch on your pitches. And, you know, you've got to have touch on your pitches to be effective long haul. Individually, in certain games, yes, you can get away. There's no doubt Chris Sale can get away with more than let's just say a guy who sinks it at 89, 90, 91 and has to really rely on his secondary pitches for strikes or swings and misses. That's really interesting, John. And um, you mentioned earlier that you, obviously you had Tommy John surgery, you ran into some injuries. Do you think that the slider or splitter added any risk to those injuries, or do you just think a normal wear and tear that eventually led to the uh, uh, breakdown at age 33 before you came back? 
Yeah, you know what's interesting is uh, uh, for me, the splitter had really, at least in my, I never felt that pitch at all. There was no torque. There was no digging. It was a very natural motion for me. I've said this repeatedly, and I would, I really believe this. When you throw 200 postseason innings, 200, and you have a shorter time for 14 straight years in a row to come back, that more than anything, along with 2,400 innings, really uh, has has given me that opportunity to probably compromise my ligament uh, with the fact that you know I threw a little bit harder than my two teammates. So. I really think it's a combination of just adjusting, adapting, and less time or recovery. And not to mention, you know, 200, 200 plus innings a lot, which is what we were, you know, we were made to do, told to do, bred to do, trained to do. And I just think those postseason innings, because I put this emphasis on postseason innings. For every inning that I pitched was three innings of stress of a regular season game. Oh, wow. That's what I could equate in my mind because that's the way I approached the game. You weren't guaranteed another game. In a regular season start, there has never been a game I've even come close to a postseason game. Never. I knew I needed to make 35, 36 starts. I could not have pitched 18 postseason effort games in a season and survived. That's just the way I went about it because I turned it up that much more when it came to the postseason. So I had a gear – let's just say third and fourth gear in the regular season. And it was fifth and sixth gear constantly every postseason game, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Can I to be a fanboy here real quick? I need to be a fanboy just for just a second. Cause I'm so glad you're on. I always thought that you had to be our big game guy when I, when I was a Braves fan back in the day, because you know, Greg Maddox seemed to rely a lot on, on command. And I thought Glavin really needed to get that outside corner from the, from the umpire. I don't know that I need a comment from you, but, uh, I think you really did turn it on, and you were you were one of the, you were probably the best that I remember of big game pitchers in, during that time. So it is interesting to no. hear you say that 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 led to some injury, maybe. No, you're right, and because the strike zone shrinks in the postseason, the pressure on the umpires, there's there's all kinds of that 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 comes into place, and um, and I think that's a that's a valid point that they had to deal with. They couldn't turn up their game. You know, they weren't going to – they couldn't throw five miles an hour more and, and be effective. They needed movement. They needed the, the hitters to chase the outside part of the plate. So, you're right. That is, that is a part of the, of, of the byproduct that I benefited from. And, you know, look, I, I, people ask me about today, pitching today, would you strike out a lot more guys? And I say yes, because guys are a lot more aggressive. Mm-hmm. They give themselves – uh, an opportunity to try to hit the long ball and they give, they don't really contact's not a priority, but that's the way it was in the postseason. Guys were more aggressive. They wanted to be the hero. And I, and I ended up uh, feeding off of that. When you made the comeback from the Tommy John was going from uh, starter to reliever. Did that make it easier to come back? Obviously you eventually went back to starting, but was that transition back into relieving and specifically closing? Did that make it easier to return from Tommy John? You know, it's funny when I go back in those days and everyone called me uh, crazy and said, this is going to be better for your arm. This should help your career, prolong your career. It was the absolute opposite. Now, when I did try to come back from Tommy John and starting wasn't working, um, it was, a, it was because I was really only at about 11 and a half months, you know, I was older and I didn't think again, you know, I was just trying to 
get back as soon as I could. When I went back to the pen and I came or went down to the monitors and went to the pen, you think about that time frame closer to about 15 months, 16 months, and I was able to come in one inning at a time, and it re- I really benefited from that. And and what what what's crazy about it is because I threw harder, people thought that Tommy John surgery allows you to th- throw harder. That's not the case. I threw harder because it was only one inning at a time, and that was the process <laughs> that 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 allowed me to do it. But when I went into the pen full time, I have never been more tired in a season than that following season after pitching 78 appearances or 78 innings, 55 saves. Uh, I was exhausted. That is a whole different regimen that definitely would not have given me um, at that rate a better chance of success. Because it goes back to what I was saying, starting for me is controlled. I'm not out of my lane. I don't throw every pitch hard. As a closer, I'm letting it eat every time because I only have three outs to get or five or four or whatever the case is. So it was a different effort level and certainly different adrenaline that starting comes nowhere close to. John, did you? Oh, sorry. sorry. So I just wanted to jump in real quick. Did closers, did, did you get hot as often as other relievers? I feel like you, you got hot less often. And how did that sort of fix in to, to uh, come into your, uh, what you're talking about with fatigue and injury and being a reliever? Is it like if you have a young guy that you might want in the, in the bullpen for a little bit, do you want to just make him the closer so he's not getting warmed up as often? And see, that's kind of the dynamics that a lot of people don't understand when we want the easy solution of bringing in your top guys in the sixth, seventh, fifth, eighth, you know, whatever the game calls for. There's the issue that people don't understand how difficult that is because now getting ready quicker, faster, and not guaranteed to get in that game starts costing that pitcher over time. Maybe I was unique because I had a a strange season of 58 or 55 saves but I warmed up over 130 times and stopped keeping track. 130 times. Now, we had a lot of strange games that year. When you're the closer on the road and you go to extra innings, you've got to be ready every bottom half of the inning because there's a potential with two outs of a guy hitting a home run or runner on scoring. Now, you don't get ready the same degree by the sixth or seventh time, but nonetheless, you're getting up a lot. It is the most defined and controllable role that you know when the lead is in the night you're going in that's a great scenario to put your best pitcher in but when you have a lot of uh setup men along the way and now they're all hard throwing guys you're tacking those guys time and time and time again they don't know any other way there's unless you're a trevor hoffman or a mariano rivera who have it so down pat and rely on one particular pitch and it's not a max effort pitch wow, that's a luxury. Mm-hmm. A Trevor Hoffman threw like 12 pitches to get ready for a save game. 12, to, that's it. Wow. His routine was so unbelievable. My first game that I went in to close, I threw 51 pitches. <laughs> wow. I was so nervous and, so, and felt so unprepared that obviously I cut that down to about 15 to 18 as the season progressed because I had some ex-veteran closures going, your arm will fall off if you continue, <laughs> obviously. Because that's what I got. That's what I threw when I got ready for a game, 54 to 55 pitches. 
Absolutely. Um, obviously, we've got tons of elite relievers these days. They're, they're throwing so hard. Obviously, they're doing that max effort that you're talking about. Do you see any of these great relievers who might uh, be better suited as starters? Obviously, somebody like Roberto uh, Osuna jumps out because he might transition back to starting. But do you see any guys that you think who are relieving now who could make the transition? Uh, I certainly, I, I think most of these guys were starters before they became closers or high, high end relievers. That's my fear in the game. We're losing a lot of great potential starters and pitchers for the sake of short stints and closing games down. What, what I will say is never have before have we seen the dynamic arms that we're seeing. Okay. But you're stunting the deli- the development of these pitchers and condensing them into a confined role. I messed it up. I'm going to admit, I messed it up for the future generation of people that thought that you could go from starter to closer and maybe back to starter. I had 2,400 innings when I did that. These young kids stripping their identity, they don't know who they are by this bouncing around mentality. I think of uh, Aaron Sanchez Mm -hmm. from Toronto and some of the guys you just mentioned. These guys, it's not that easy to go in and, and feel like, what am I? Am I a starter? Am I a reliever? Am I a closer? Do, do I fit here? And, and Jabba Chamberlain obviously is the greatest example that we have that who knows what his career turned into having gone through what he went through. And I know the game's changed. I know we're looking at five, six innings of starting and we rest should come out of the bullpen. But unless this has been my constant philosophy for years, unless pitching keeps coming, unless there are so many arms, I can't see how this is sustainable over time. The Tommy John injuries in the bullpens are coming more and more and more. And, and the guys are doing a fantastic job. But I would train guys a little bit differently and make them hybrid guys. I would take a, a Dylan Batances and, and look at two innings every other day or two innings every three days, locking down some of those, those innings that instead of just, you know, one hard, stressful inning three days in a row or two out of four I think there's opportunities for some of these guys to really look at it and eat up more innings and not have to just go to the tank so many times. But maybe that's wishful thinking a little bit because these hybrid guys are coming now. You know, Wade Davis was a mistake that turned into a phenomenal story. This guy was a trade that was supposed to be a starter and ended up becoming one of the most nastiest. You cannot, as an organization, in my opinion – replicate the Kansas City Royals. They have four. And and it's and they can't keep them for that much longer either. So they're making the most of their opportunities. That's the thing. You basically got to get lucky when they are younger and affordable because the, the prices are going to start to escalate. You mentioned Wade Davis. He's also happens to be a, a great benefit because he's already under a nice long-term contract from Tampa Bay. So that is very interesting. By the way, you mentioned that your transition came when you had tons of innings. Do you think that that's why somebody like C.J. Wilson worked so well? Because he'd already been uh, maybe more of a long-term guy, kind of knew who he was, even though most of it was in relief. Is that why he was able to transition into starting relatively seamlessly? I think so. I mean, you look, <clears throat> we know what happens when you expose film and it's not ready. And I think that's the same thing that happens when we get these guys through the minor league so fast because their arms are good and you don't develop and they have to learn in the big, there's a lot mentally that they don't reach and it stunts them a little bit. The more veteran guy, the guy who knows who he is and established himself, whether through the minor leagues and in the big leagues has a better chance of that transition. 
There's so many components that go into it. It's not just physical, the mental components of handling that role reversal and that change and that it's two different trainings. When I went to spring training and we didn't know if I was going to be a starter or closer the second time around. And then when John Sherholtz got Danny Cobb as, as a closer for the Milwaukee Brewers, I told John Sherholtz before the season, before that off season started, <clears throat> I'm going to train to start. And if I end up having to close, I can close, but I can't train to close and then turn around and try to start. That is a big difference, and that's, that's, I think, one of the things that Aaron Sansa is look, talking to him. He's trying to adopt maybe that same process as he's battling for a, a, a starter spot, and then you can make the transition, I guess, the other way if you don't make it. You know, one last uh, sort of uh, group of things, a couple questions I wanted to ask you about was command, because command is really interesting. It's not something you can just look at walk rate, I think, and just say, oh, you know, that, that guy has a great walk rate. He has great command. It's a little bit harder than that. Sometimes you, you, you want to throw a ball. So, you know, you famously pitched with Greg Maddox, and I think that people think of him as just the command guy, but I think he started with, uh, with stuff and kind of made a big jump when he switched from that four-seamer to that two-seamer. So I, I'm wondering if, uh, you know, his was kind of the opposite story of yours, where people think it's about command, but it was more about finding that natural movement to fit his arm slot. So he was way better with the two-seamer in his arm slot, and you were way better with the four-seamer in your arm slot. Uh, is that that's sort of... Yeah, exactly. Is that yeah, and part of it was learning in the park, ballpark that he pitched in, right? So he pitched in, in Wrigley Field, and when the wind would blow, obviously, out, it would affect a lot of pitchers, and Thankfully, I guess historically it, it blows, blows in more than it blows out, but he had to learn how to sink and cut the ball because he needed to get the ball on the ground with that thick grass. And so he threw harder. He could throw over 92, 93 miles an hour when he broke in, four-seam fastball, but then <clears throat> that wasn't working. And so he adapted, and he learned the perfect mechanics, in my opinion, to do exactly what he did. And he never, never pushed the accelerator when he was in trouble as a matter of fact he eased off the gas he changed speeds more he slowed the game down and that was one thing that made him such an incredible pitcher in situations got tough every three and two pitch for the most part was a changeup. and i think the whole world ended up knowing that coming and nobody could do anything with it that's the <laughs> definition of a great pitch and the definition of knowing that you can feed off the eagle of a, of a hitter when it's a neutral count and still have a, a decided advantage and not walk people along the way. You know, and then another thing that I think of uh, is, I don't know if you've seen the stat, they did this thing where they tracked the catcher's glove and they tracked the catcher's glove and, uh, and saw how far it moved to get to the pitch. So almost like how, how much you miss your target by. And I did a piece on this, but, you know, if you miss, they miss on 3-0 counts, the best pitchers in the league, and Dallas Keuchel is one of them, if the best pitchers in the league miss by almost 10 inches on average, even in 3-0 counts. So I think that I think that people think that y'all can hit the bottle caps off of bottles, but that I think that maybe people misunderstand uh, how much command you guys have out there. Yeah, you know, and, and one of the things that, uh, that I would argue is Greg Maddox had the best command I've ever seen consistently on doing things with movement. Think about hitting a target with movement over and over and over again. You would think the straighter ball 
has the uh, better opportunity to hit your target because you can go direct line on where you're trying to go. But his ability to command, it's all about the head being still and the mechanics working together. It's like hitting a golf ball perfectly straight. The hardest thing to do is hit a golf ball perfectly straight. The second hardest thing to do is to hit a baseball with a round bat and a round ball. Mm-hmm. But throwing a baseball consistently in the areas that you want to and making that hitter look like it's the desirable pitch to go after, that's the key. And ultimately, when I would go to spring training, I could, in spring training, getting ready, could throw the ball right down the middle at will for batting practice. And that's the other argument that I would make, that uh, pitch counts mean nothing when it's considered of just throwing it down the middle. I could throw 150 pitches a game with no stress and no care at all for where the ball ends up. But what creates stress and what makes pitch counts relevant is when you get in and out of trouble and have to make those nasty 3-1 pitches or constantly try to deal with the game and, and and its atmosphere. But just throwing a baseball down the middle at 95 miles an hour with no stress is is not that difficult. It's all the other thing components that come in. That's why when I hear a, a pitch count given for a pitcher, I laugh. I go, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> They're not taking into consideration how that game is going and what that pitcher is having to get in and out of to to duplicate. And that's the old Matt Harvey, you know, conversation when I was doing the game for MLB Network International. I said the same thing. I said, okay, tough situation. Manager's in a tough spot. This is a guy with high intensity and emotion. And as soon as he ran out to the mound, which was different than any other inning he had ever done, I said, he is now pitching to the moment and not the game. And when you pitch to the moment and not the game or the hitter, you get away from what is going to make you successful. And my, and Matt Baskershin asked me, when will I know if he's got what it takes to get through this inning. I said, if he can't get the ball down, he's too amped up, and you've got to take him out. And unfortunately, that's what happened with the one-two pitch. And uh, he couldn't put him away and end up walking. That, that ends up pairing really interestingly. Something Colin McHugh once said to me, that he thinks command is just aggressive execution. So that sounds like uh, kind of those tough pitches you're talking about in a way. And he, he mentioned that he thought Max Scherzer – even though no one has ever thought, thought that Max Searcher has great command in sort of this old school, uh, you know, hit your spots way, he thought that in in this maybe this new sort of modern definition of command that Max Searcher had great um, command because he could really just consistently execute his pitches really well, and so that meant that even if he's missing a spot, it's still a great slider. And if you think about how oftentimes uh, people pop up in batting practice and how hard it is to hit as much as it is to pitch. I wonder if you had a thought about that. It's that sometimes you got great swings and misses on great pitches that were not exactly where you wanted them to go. Well, that, that works early in the game when you have better stuff. Later in the game, you have to concentrate more on location because your stuff typically is not going to be as good. And we were trained to go through three and four at-bats per, per game, right? Today, you're just trained to max out, no pun intended, with Max Scherzer and, and go as hard as you can, as long as you can, and just have you until you're till somebody else who has better stuff comes in in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning. My fear of that is we lose the art of pitching and we lose the ability to uh, expose the hitter's weaknesses greater. And no greater example to me is why people are trying to figure out is hitting worse or pitching better. And what I would argue is every pitcher knows there's a weakness of a hitter, 
But getting the ball consistently to the weakness is not the strength today. But pitching with tremendous stuff in the strike zone and overpowering hitters with stuff, that is much better than it ever has been. But the reason guys can still hit 48 and 50 home runs today is pitchers cannot expose the weaknesses consistently enough, and those mistakes are getting hit a long way. So when you lose the art of pitching, but you throw in the ability to dominate with stuff, there's going to be some trade-offs. So when you talk about the aggressive command late in the game, when you are not able to locate in the 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth innings, that's when you're more apt to be burned and give up that long ball. That's why I was, I was taught, don't ever get beat late on a pitch that is not one of your better pitches. So my weaknesses, for example, was going in because my ball cut. I rarely ever went in from the seventh inning on so that I would never get beat on a pitch that was my least, least pitch. To that point about stuff that you're talking about, John, if you're kind of building a pitcher, uh, an ideal would you, would you rather start with a dominant pitch and try to add more, or would you rather have maybe a wider mix and try to improve one pitch into a plus or plus-plus level? What, what do you think is ideal there? Well, that's a great question, and, and I, would, I would say I would rather start with a guy who has good mechanics because then you can teach him the ability to do multiple things. If a guy has a dominant fastball and it's 98, but his mechanics – see, a fastball, you can get away with bad mechanics – and, and still be effective. I mean, I wouldn't call Max Scherzer having great mechanics. He's just learned how to maximize his ability to throw a ball the way that he throws the ball. Mm-hmm. So if a guy has good mechanics in 98, now I can teach him a proper release point of a curveball or maybe even a changeup or maybe even a split or a slider. So to answer it fairly, if you, get, if you give me a guy with command, then I can do a lot with that. But if you give me a guy with stuff and all he has is stuff, then I'm going to have to figure out how to best way utilize that guy. And that may not be, you know, that's why you're seeing such a change in guy with great stuff, but mechanics aren't good. He's going to leak a little bit. So we're going to put him in the pen, not expose him. And that's the reason I think Patances is in the pen. This guy was going to be one of those starters, those dominant starters that we talk about for a long time. But because he struggles throwing fastball strikes, mm-hmm. He's more utilized out of the pen now with that wipeout slider that he throws more than he does his fastball. When he learns to throw his fastball, this guy's going to have a longer shelf life and he's going to be more dominant, even though that dominant pitch right now is his breaking ball. That, that's terrifying news for the league. So anybody that's not on the Yankees <laughs> and is listening to this is, is probably freaking out if Patances is actually going to get better. Uh, John, one last thing for you couple starting pitchers that maybe you see taking a jump forward this year guys who haven't necessarily been studs yet but you see some elements there that that could prop them up this year who you got uh there, there really is a lot of those guys this 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 league is filled you could i could spend a, a whole day on it I, the guys that jump up to, and again i've got no really hard evidence on this other than i've just watched enough of this guy to feel like he's got to be better and that's Samarja. I think his environment, I think the park, I think the team is going to lead to this guy, lead this guy being a much better pitcher. And he has to turn the corners. He has to make changes, whether it's mentally or physically, point and start dominating because he's got it. 
he's got that capability. Last year, he threw a lot of innings, had a, a much higher ERA than I think was expected. He's got the stuff, and now it's about putting it together and having the byproduct of a team and getting out of that. You know, he has lost more games than he's won, and and that that I think is going to be a, a very a very big thing for him. Um, when I look around, I'm a big fan of Shelby Miller. Shelby Miller, last year, aberration of what went on, right? He had an unbelievable year, but he lost. I think how unbelievable could it be? I think Shelby Miller, if he makes one mechanical adjustment and makes that ball turn the corner a little bit, this guy, they won't be talking about what Arizona gave up. They'll be talking about what Arizona got with the one-two punch of Granke and Shelby Miller. But when I look around the league and I see all kinds of potential of guys that can can really make or break a ball club, who else can you think but Steven Strasburg? Again, this seems to be a topic every year yeah. of Steven Strasburg. When is he going to go to that next level? I feel bad for this guy because I was in his shoes so many times. I was picked to win the Cy Young so many different times and never even came close, and then in 96 won it got the monkey off my back, if you will. <laughs> Steven Strasburg has that same opportunity because this this guy, um, I'm, I would argue, is, is can be unbelievable. And, and I think this year he will be. You know, I, I, we didn't prep you for this, so this is unfair, but I, I did just want to ask you because we had that great conversation about stuff and command. Uh, I want to just give you two pitchers, and they, they're very far apart in terms of and they're young pitchers. They're very far apart in terms of what people thought of them coming into the league, I think. But uh, if I had to get you to choose between a guy like Aaron Nola and then a guy like Carlos Rodon, uh, could I get you to choose? Uh, and uh, would you have a strong feeling either way? Or is there one one you'd want to start with? Or uh, do you have a feeling about you that? You know, it's interesting. It's interesting because of where they pitch. Um, I never, never has there been. I guess so many different ballparks where you go, holy cow, is that a tough park to pitch in? <laughs> and I think the development sometimes gets tainted and, and can be you know, skewed a little bit. I make no bones about it. Citizen Ballpark is one of the hardest ballparks to pitch in. And, yes, the Phillies for a short period of time with their pitching staff made a mockery of it and dominated. But that's a unique pitching staff. Uh, Nola, I haven't seen a ton of him, but I think he's got the makeup of being a frontline starter, no doubt, if he can get that ballpark to not get in his head. I could not stand pitching in Fulton County Stadium, believe it or not, my home mm-hmm. park. I probably gave up 50 more home runs career-wise at home than I did on the road. It was truly a launching pad. Yeah, I mean, the ball just sucked pad. out of each, <laughs> and it was. And yeah. I'm a fly ball pitcher, so that wasn't a good scenario for me long-term. Um from a Rondon coming from college and, 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 you know, with the with the White Sox, similar thing. You're, you're talking about a ball jumps out of that ballpark when it ever warms up. Why does it seem like it, the cool temperature stayed throughout the whole year? And they're two totally different pitchers, and, and I think their ball clubs and, and development, it's going to be misleading if I chose Nola because statistically his ball club probably not as good as the Chicago White Sox. I think the upside's higher for Rendon right now based on those components. 
John, we really appreciate your time for sure. I'm going to give you a one last, I'm going to give you a last second chance here to talk about your Michigan State Spartans. Obviously, you're putting them in the Final Four, but are you are you taking them for the whole championship in this year's bracket? I am, and finally, this will be the first and few one of those years where I will not be the only one doing that. Every year, <laughs> including last year, last year. I got the final four correct. I almost picked every single game from the Sweet 16 on correct. It was a dream year. The only game I, I got two games wrong, the championship game wrong, but I had both teams in it. I had Wisconsin winning. And I haven't really looked at the at the brackets yet. I haven't had a chance, and I will have Michigan State going all the way. I can promise you that. Right. And uh, I, I felt very strong about their chances as the year started. And uh, as this bracket unfolds, even though I am completely, completely dismayed by the fact they didn't get a number one seed, I don't understand that. It ultimately didn't matter. They would have been in the same region, I think, and Virginia would have got the number two. So favorite time of the year, working a little too hard, won't be able to watch as many of those games. But um, it is an awesome time of the year. Baseball gets ready after March Madness and the NCAA champions get get crowned. It really is one of the very best months when you have those two events, my Longhorns versus your Spartans in the final. That sounds like a great matchup, Tom. (laughs) Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And I'll be texting you for some tips, obviously, on the bracket because I didn't realize you were such a shark with that. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I love it. I I, I watch a lot of basketball, and uh, I, I just truly think the dynamics of which to play that one and done is so much fun for a lot of these kids. Tom Izzo is one of the best in the world at getting the most out of his players. And there'll be a lot of pressure on him this year because in the past, he's always been a little bit of an underdog and maybe, you know, uh, a higher seed type team getting, farther than they expected yeah i think this year they've, they've got the expectations but that's never really hurt them in the past either I, w- I would actually go so far as to say Izzo's the very best when it comes to uh march madness and i think everyone should have the spartans going at least a few games if you don't agree with john of taking them all the way but again john thank you so much for your time this was great chatting with you and hopefully we'll be able to do it again down the line i look forward to it guys Thanks thank you And there it is, the interview with John Smoltz, Hall of Fame pitcher for the Atlanta Braves, St. Louis Cardinals, and he also pitched for the Red Sox, right? Yeah, Boston Red Sox as well. That's going to wrap up episode 320. Really hope you enjoyed that. We will be back probably on Wednesday. Again, I've I've mentioned it a hundred times. The schedule is a little bit sporadic right now Uh, in March. Only got a couple more weeks left of that. I'm going to New York this week. Uh, We're going to be having drafts most of the upcoming weekends, some weeknights even. So bear with us on that. But don't worry. Once the season starts have a pretty set schedule and by the way i'll mention one more time starting pitcher guide is now available at vspguide.com if you want to go check that out comes with a spreadsheet for your drafts and should get you all set up thanks for listening